Good morning. morning. And let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we invite you to join us here today, enlightening our minds, transforming our hearts, and empowering us to be your representatives on earth. Uh, Lead us in our study and discussion that we can glorify you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in the quarterly present truth in Deuteronomy. And the uh, memory verse is Deuteronomy 9.7, which reads, Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. You have provoked the Lord to wrath. Does this mean the Lord has limited patience? That God is very much like us and can be provoked if we pester him or uh, rebel enough or, or if we're wicked enough, he'll eventually, uh, the cup of his indignation gets full, he can't contain it anymore, it begins to overflow and he begins to act out because we have finally reached the end of his patience. Is that what this means? Is the message here in this text, you better obey God or else he will be provoked and use his power to strike you down. He'll punish you. You better obey. You obey or else. Is that the message? Why not? Why is that not the message? Have you never heard that message presented in Christian forums? With texts just like this? You guys are rebellious. You guys went, and you provoked the Lord to wrath. So why is that not the right message? Yeah, but you don't believe the Bible? The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. Don't you have faith? Is your reason superior to Scripture? I'm messing with him. You know, you know that. Did you hear what he said? What law lens are you reading it through? If you have the premise that God's law works like human law, then you read it as God getting angry and punishing because of their continued disobedience. If you have the design law lens, though, something else completely comes to mind. When we worship the Creator, we understand that His laws are the laws upon which reality operate. Love only exists in an atmosphere of freedom. God cannot be saying that He will use power to inflict punishment on the disobedience because, disobedient because to do that would be to destroy love and incite more rebellion. So, this line of thinking that sin requires punishment, that it's right and just and required of sin, that it be punished, where does that line of thinking originate? This is Satan's original lie. This is his original premise. This is his trick, his deception, uh, that causes some people, having bought into this view, to pursue righteousness to pursue orderliness, to pursue law-keeping, to pursue salvation. All the stuff they pursue is done through legal mechanics and legal trickery. And they do this through religion and religious teachings of legal mechanics and legal violations and just punishments and someone substitutes to take the payment and be punished in your place and offer the deity the, the blood sacrifice so he won't be angry and he won't use his power to kill. Thus, they have the, 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 the insidiousness of this penal legal view allows people to promote Satan's version and perversion of God's character while they feel righteous as law keepers. 
We're just promoting the law. We're standing for the law. You're against the law if you don't support the law. Have you heard this? Through design law, though, we understand that rebelliousness, violating God's law, actually hardens the heart, warps the character, sears the conscience. So we understand that in this passage, the people in rebellion were destroying themselves, destroying the very faculties that are sensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God. They were hardening their hearts. They were searing their consciences. They wouldn't listen to Moses. They wouldn't listen to God himself. They wouldn't be humbled by the pillar of fire. Imagine that every day. Every day you get up and there's a pillar of fire of God's presence that you can look and see. It's like a magical pillar of fire. And it moves when you move. And it's a cloud that, co- that covers by day and gives light and heat by night. Think that through for a minute. These people wouldn't humble themselves. They wouldn't listen. So, because God is love, and God loves them and wants to prevent their eternal loss, their destruction of their souls, their hearts, and their minds, the reality of what sin does to the sinner required God to withdraw his protection and allow them to experience life without his artificial bubble of protection that prevented the things of the desert from harming them. Yes? I was looking at Hosea 13 uh, where God is saying, uh, where's your king that he may save you? He was talking about how the Israelites keep not looking to him. Where are the rulers of the towns when you said, give me a king and princes? So in my anger, I gave you a king. In my wrath, I took him away. So God is letting them reap what they choose. So here's, let, let's, let's uh, uh, examine a quote out of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets and go through it and see some of the details this author uh, unpacks for us about this situation. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 428. Moses faithfully set before the people their great sin. It was God's power alone that had preserved them. In the great and terrible wilderness where uh, were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, every day of of their travels they had been kept by a miracle of divine mercy. In all the way of God leading, they had found water to refresh the thirsty, bread from heaven to satisfy the hungry, uh, and peace and safety under the shadowy cloud uh, by day and the fire, pillar of fire by night. Angels had ministered to them as they climbed the rocky heights uh, or threaded the rugged paths of the wilderness. Notwithstanding the hardships they had endured, there was not a feeble one in their ranks. Their feet had not swollen in the long journey. Neither had their clothes uh, grown old. God had subdued before them the fierce beasts of prey and the venomous reptiles of the forest and the desert. If with all these tokens of his love, the people still continued to complain, the Lord would withdraw his protection until they should be led to appreciate his merciful care and return to him with repentance and humiliation. Why did God withdraw? Did he get impatient? Did God get his feelings hurt? Look, you ungrateful people, I'm spending my time on you, my energy on you, my resources on you. You can't at least give a little appreciation back my way? Uh, Then forget you people, I'll let you suffer. Is that what happened? Or is there another reason? 
what is happening to their hearts and minds and characters while they practice rebellion, cherish selfishness, grumble, complain, and blame God. So if God continues to protect them from reality and let their fantasy that things are better in Egypt, that's not reality. Things are not better in Egypt. Things are better with God. But in their mind, they have a fantasy. It would be better in Egypt. It's hard out here. And so if God lets them continue acting on their fantasy, what happens to them? They continue to grumble and complain. They harden themselves and spread the rebelliousness to their children and their grandchildren. So God was forced by reality how love and liberty works to remove his protections and let them become educated on reality in order for them to realize they've been operating on fantasy so they could see how reality is. Only in harmony with God's design law is their life and health. Understand, the same dynamics happening in the world right now. Fantasy after fantasy after fantasy in contradiction to reality and how design laws work are constantly being put forth on the people. Policies are being passed based on hope, wish, dream, fantasy, fraud. And God permits it. And what are we seeing? Just wake up and wake. talk about this woke. Woke is supposed to be wake up. Do you understand the wokies are completely delusional? Almost everything they teach is contrary to reality. Almost everything. It's fraudulent. Just observe. You can't get something for free in this world. There's always a cost. Count the cost. You've heard, count the cost. But just look around, see what's happening. God is permitting more and more painful consequences to occur so that people who are going down paths of fantasy have the opportunity to check the things that they've been doing and reevaluate. Maybe that's not how reality works. But even, and we're going to go into the details here in a minute, when reality comes in and bites you hard and you're dying of the poison, some people still prefer the fantasy to the reality and they won't repent and they die. Some people would rather die in their fantasy than humble themselves and repent and embrace reality. So continue with the quote, because they had been shielded by divine power, they had not realized the countless dangers by which they were continually surrounded in their ingratitude and unbelief. They had anticipated death uh, and they have anticipated death. And now the Lord permitted death to come upon them. The poisonous serpents that infested the wilderness. Paul's right here. The serpents, these poisonous are the natural inhabitants of the area in which they were traveling. These were not especially brought in some miraculous way by God to inflict a punishment on them. Instead, God stopped using his miraculous interventions to hold what was naturally there at bay. This is a quite important distinction to make. Some will teach this story. Well, they rebelled, so God brought serpents in to punish them. No, he didn't. 
They didn't want him involved. They wanted to do it their own way, so he withdrew his protection to let them see what life is like without him. And that's what happened. These are naturally in the environment. The poisonous serpents that infested the wilderness were called fiery serpents on account of the terrible effects produced by their sting. It caused violent inflammation and speedy death. As the protecting hand of God was removed from Israel, great numbers of people were attacked by these venomous creatures. Now we're... Now there was terror and confusion throughout the encampment. In almost every tent were the dying or the dead. None were secure. Often the silence of night was broken by piercing cries of, uh, that told of fresh victims. All were busy in ministering to the suffering or with agonizing care endeavoring to protect those who were not yet stricken. No murmurings now escaped their lips. Why? Why had the murmuring stopped? Were they suddenly reborn into a faith relationship with the Lord? Had their hearts come to love and trust? No, that's not what happened. They just realized reality. Whoa, whoa. Uh, Things are actually better off with God than without him. It's actually more painful. There are people writing, we need God in our nation. They're praying for God's presence here. You see some people. When compared to the present suffering, their former difficulties and trials seem unworthy of thought. The people now humbled themselves before God. They came to Moses with their confessions and entreaties. We have sinned, they said, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pause. Is this repentance? This is not repentance. This is confession and entreaties or confession and pleading. What are they sorrowing over? The rebelliousness in their heart? The consequences. The consequences. They're sorry that they're suffering. That's what they're sorry for. This is not yet repentance. This is often the first step toward repentance, but they, this is not yet repentance. Only a little before they had accused him of being their worst enemy, uh, the cause of all their distress and affliction. Listen, listen to this, what's the process of the mind and how it works. But even when the words were upon their lips, they knew the charges were false. And as soon as real trouble came, they fled uh, to him as the only one who could intercede for God, with God for them. Pray unto the Lord, they cried, that he will take away the serpents. Have you seen a similar process playing out in the world in the last couple of years? Certain people in society being blamed for things that they didn't do, and the people who are making the accusations know, just like this says, they knew, they know the charges are false. You've heard of a certain dossier that is now admitted by everyone to have been false the entire time, completely fraudulent? Even woke news organizations have come out recently and admitted that and edited uh, three years' worth of editorial publications that said this is all false. They knew when they were doing it was false. You're the enemy. How many people buy into this? How about Nick Sandman? Remember Nick Sandman? Catholic Covington High School student who was accused and smeared all over the media as being a racist and attacking an American Indian and all this kind of false, false. They knew it was false when they did it. They edited a video that would have exonerated him to make it appear to be something. And of course, he won several multi-million dollar lawsuits against the media organizations who did this. The same process is happening today. Presenting false accusations and allegations that they know are false when they're doing it. Do you have discernment? 
to be able to tell the difference? Or do you listen to the accusations going on? I can't tell you the pushback I get from certain people who listen to our ministry when I try to present evidence, truth, to give discerning skills. They can't tolerate it because they believe some of these accusations or some of these lies and they get real upset. I wonder if they have the ability to repent or are they going to be like these people that you're going to read about who even when the snakes are biting and they're suffering, they were going to still blame Moses or blame the innocent party who didn't cause it because they can't acknowledge with their pride and arrogance that they were wrong. Tim, is there a dimension of uh, sort of entitlement with people who feel that they have, since they have been, quote, chosen or they're part of this group that God is protecting, that we have certain expectations and somehow just because we got off a little bit on, on an idolatry somewhere or, or we're fantasizing about what we think would be better doesn't mean that God should withdraw all his protections from us. So these people then enter sort of another uh, state of self-deception thinking that they shouldn't have to forsake those fantasies. Definitely, sin is self-centeredness, narcissism, and anything that will advance you and make you feel better than others and more deserving is part of the sin process. That's exactly right. Moses was divinely commanded to make a serpent of brass resembling the living ones and to elevate it among the people. What does this represent? Jesus actually became a real human. This is the symbology. Resembling the living ones, Jesus became a real human. To, to this, all who had been bitten were to look, and they would find relief. He did so, and the joyful news was sounded throughout the encampment that all who had been bitten might look to the brazen serpent and live. Many had already died, and when Moses raised the serpent upon the pole, some would not believe that merely gazing upon the metallic image would heal them. These perished in their unbelief. I'm telling you, even when the truth is before some people, they, they won't believe it. And they'd rather die. Uh, yet there were many who had faith in the provision which God had made. Fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters were anxiously engaged in helping their suffering, dying friends to fix the languid eyes upon the serpent. If these, though, though faint and dying, could only look once, they were perfectly restored. The people well knew that there was no power in the serpent of brass to cause such a change in those who looked upon it. The healing virtue was from God alone. They knew it. The people knew that the brass serpent had no power. It was God healing them. Do we know that our healing from sin comes from God? Do we know that? That we cannot heal ourselves? Can we heal our nation? Do you understand, do you understand what I just said? How many people think they can? Climate change. <laughs> Can we heal this world? Can we heal our nation from violence, rebellion, prejudice, and all the very problems? So if a nation were to make changes that applied God's methods, what would be the result if we actually, as a nation, did that? What would be required for a nation to actually apply God's methods and change the fundamental landscape of the nation? What would be required? Every human heart has to change. The hearts of the people have to change. You cannot bring God's methods to bear on a nation through human governments, through legislation, through judicial rulings. The only way you bring God's methods to bear in a nation is to convert the people. That's the only way. 
And you see Satan's trick. He's going to talk about wanting to get back to the Bible. You're going to see people raising up. We've got to turn our nation back to God. But then their method is going to be elect this person, pass this law, get these people in power, punish those people. Uh, and it's a big trick. You cannot achieve God's cause using Satan's methods. In his wisdom, he chose this way of displaying his power. By this simple means, the people were made to realize that this affliction had been brought upon them by their sins. What brought their sins? God wasn't using power to inflict it? No, it was a consequence of their rebelling and him giving them their freedom from him, and they suffered. They were also assured that while obeying God, they had no reason to fear, for he would preserve them. Think that through. While obeying God, no reason to fear. If we don't obey God, do we have reason to fear? Yes, we do. But we do not have reason to fear God while disobeying God. We have reason to fear the consequences and result of what sin does to the sinner when we disobey God. It's like a person who smokes two packs a day and disobeys their pulmonologist's instructions to quit. They don't need to fear the pulmonologist. They need to fear what smoking does to them. And this perversion about imposed law, that God's law functions like human law, rather than the creator and his laws, the laws upon which life and health are built, this perversion has caused most Christians to be more afraid of God who's trying to save them and heal them than the sin in their life which is killing them. They're afraid they think falsely, if I do this, God will punish me. If I, and, and if I can just get rid of his wrath and his punishment, then I'm good. I, I did lectures over at the college and, and high school over here about human sexuality. And I allowed anonymous questions to come in. And one of the common questions that came from these adolescents was, well, if God's going to forgive me for sin, what's wrong with premarital sex? That's like saying, if God's going to forgive me for smoking two packs a day, what's wrong with smoking two packs a day? There's no concept of the damage that violating God's design laws do to the heart, mind, and character of the person, much less the body. So we never need to fear God in the sense of being afraid. We need to be in awe and reverence. But we, we ought to be afraid of deviating from his design laws and, and, and hurting ourselves and misrepresenting him. Okay, the lifting up of the brass serpent was to teach Israel an important lesson. They could not save themselves from the fatal effect of the poison in their wounds. This is a powerful object lesson. It wasn't about a legal status. It wasn't about a broken rule. It was not about being in legal trouble with God. They had an actual condition that without remedy would result in their death. Likewise, every human being since Adam sinned, is born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51.5. We're born with a condition we did not choose. That condition is out of harmony with God's design for life. We're infected with fear and selfishness. You can call it the carnal nature, you can call it the flesh, you can call it the sin, whatever you want, but its motives are not trust and love. It's me first, the survival drives. That condition, without remedy, without intervention from our creator, results in ruin and death. It kills us. The terminal condition. We're not born legally guilty. We're born with a terminal condition. Thus, we require someone to fix, heal, restore, recreate, remedy our situation. And the remedy is Jesus. If we choose to trust him, we get a new heart and right spirit. Continuing on with the quote. God alone was able to heal them. 
yet they were required to show faith in the provision which he had made. Why should they show faith? Why? Is faith of a physically sick person required for the healing of the physically sick person? Is faith of a physically sick person, a miraculous, okay, let me say it again. Is faith of a physically sick person required for the miraculous healing of that person? Yes. Do you remember a, a, a son who had a condition, who threw himself in a fire as Jesus came down off the mountain? Remember the story? Epilepsy, or they called it, they called it with the demon. The apostles couldn't, couldn't do much for that situation. Who had faith in that situation, the boy or the dad? Yes. So, so how could the boy get healed if he didn't exercise? Do we have any record of the boy exercising faith? We don't have any record of that. Maybe he did. How about the girl who died and Jesus resurrected her? Did she exercise faith? How about the centurion who came and asked for his servant to be healed? Remember the centurion? He said, I've never seen such a great faith in all of Israel. I'm a commander. You give a command, and I give a command, and you just tell him it'll be good. Did Jesus heal that man? Did, do we have any record that the, that the one who received the healing exercised faith? So I would suggest that, in fact, physical healing does not require faith on the part of the one receiving the physical healing. It requires faith of somebody connected with it. It's kind of it's kind of like intercessory prayer. You pray for somebody, they may not. So, so if that we're, we're not going to get off on a side issue, <laughs> I think I've made the case with evidence that in fact Scripture gives multiple examples of people being healed of a physical malady that they themselves did not exercise faith. At least we have no record that they did. What about being healed from sin, however? Can a person be healed from sin without them exercising faith? No. no. So while this metaphor of healing is a very powerful metaphor, it breaks down when it comes to healing of the heart, and there's a specific reality-based design law reason for that. What's the reason that a sinner cannot be healed from sin without their personal exercise of faith or trust? It's a condition of the heart, Without willingness, trust, or our agreement, any exercise of divine power to change the current of our thoughts, the desires of our hearts, our affections and attachments, any divine power to change that without our willing, trusting desire and participation destroys our individuality. It's not us anymore. We have to be fully persuaded in our own heart and mind. We don't have the power to heal ourselves. We don't have the power to change ourselves. But we have to desire it with all our heart. We have to agree with the Lord. We have to choose. We have to surrender. We have to have faith. And that's the point of it. Okay. They must look in order to live. So this was an object lesson teaching that larger reality. That's why in this situation they had to look and, and exercise the faith by their action because it's a metaphor for the larger reality. Um, it was uh, their faith that was acceptable with God, and by looking upon the serpent, their faith was shown. They knew that there was no virtue in the serpent itself, but it was a symbol of Christ and the, necessary, uh, and the necessity of faith in his merit was thus presented to their minds. This is also powerful. 
they knew a Savior was promised. Salvation was not in themselves. A Messiah was coming. What are the merits of the Messiah? When it says, in the merits, they had to have faith in Christ's merits. What are merits? They're accomplishments. They're achievements. That's what they are. What did Christ achieve that we have faith in? Pardon? He developed a perfect, sinless human character. That's correct. He also revealed the truth that destroys lies and windows to trust, exposed Satan as a liar and fraud. So he, he meritorious on multiple levels. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Heretofore, many had brought their offerings to God and had felt that in so doing, they made ample atonement for their sins. Did you hear that? Bring their offering. And that's what the, I sinned. I killed a lamb. I did it in the right ritualistic way, had the right priest spread it around the, 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 the theater in the right places. Therefore, I'm good. My sin has been paid for, atoned. This is what they thought. This is pagan. This view of sacrifice, atoning for sins in this way, mechanically, legalistically, is pagan. They viewed the object lesson of the theater of the sanctuary through the wrong lens, through the imposed law lens, not the design law lens. Yes? In Second Kings 7, uh, 18, Hezekiah ended up taking that bronze serpent and grinding it down and getting rid of it because people began to worship it. Yes. They, tur- they named it Nehushtan or something, and they, and they worshipped it instead of... They, they got so... Uh, they forgot the lesson that it was just, just representing the Messiah and had no power in itself. Yeah, they became again pagan in their thinking. Good, thank you. The brass serpent experience demonstrated in an object lesson way reality to them. They had an actual condition. They couldn't heal it themselves. They needed something outside of themselves to fix the condition that was killing them. That's our sin condition. This is why the health message is the right arm of the gospel. Health message operates on the laws of health. God's healing of our hearts and minds are, are on the same types of laws. They did not rely upon the redeem they they did not rely upon the redeemer to come of whom this, these are the ones who, who brought the sacrifice thinking that that was enough. This is what she's talking about. They did not rely on the Redeemer to come, of whom these offerings were only a type. The Lord would now teach them that their sacrifices in themselves had no more power or virtue than a serpent of brass, but were like that to lead their minds to Christ, the great sin offering. Why did Jesus have to die for our salvation? Was it to teach us of God's love? It was one of the reasons. Why would death be necessary to teach us that God loves us? Can you teach your children that you love them without having to die? If you died and said, look, I want you to know I love you so much, I'm going to die for you right now, and you take a pill and you kill yourself, would would that help your children know how much you love them? By killing yourself. So how is death related to revealing and persuading us that God loves us. Because you hear it all the time, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that Christ loved us so much he died for us. Don't you hear this all the time? I think the example you made was a little off. Because if your parent just killed himself randomly, that'd be one thing. But if they killed himself so that you wouldn't die, that would be a greater sign of love. Excellent.
excellent, 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 excellent. The only time and place that death reveals love is when some person is in a situation where your act that results in your death, if you don't act, results in their death. They're under an actual death threat of some kind. So your child is drowning, and you refuse to jump in the water to try and save them. The Titanic is going down, and there's one seat, and you, the parent, take it and leave your child on the Titanic. These two actions reveal something other than love. But if in those circumstances you jump in to save them, or you put your child on the lifeboat and you go down with the Titanic, in those circumstances your death reveals love. Only in the circumstances where there's an actual death threat to the object of your love does death reveal love. So humans had a circumstance. They would die without Christ because they have a condition inherited from Adam that's terminal. And without an intervention, they're going to... So Christ comes in, takes the condition for a purpose. I'll unpack that in just a second. So Christ's death, it goes back again to reality and what the serpent of brass is trying to teach. They had real poison. We have real sinfulness, real fear, real selfishness. Contrary to how God built life, without intervention, the condition results in ruin and death. Death. So if we are to live, someone has to eradicate the infection. Somebody has to get rid of fear and selfishness out of humanity. Put God's law back in. No humans after Adam sinned and prior to Jesus were born capable of doing that. Christ came in order to restore God's law and purge the fear and selfishness from humanity. And then one more paragraph, and we're going to unpack it even a little more from what Paul said. This is the last paragraph, Patriarchs and Prophets 431. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so even was the Son of Man lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All who have ever lived upon the earth have felt the deadly sting of that old serpent called the devil and Satan. The fatal effects of sin can be removed only by the provisions that God has made. It's only through the victory of Jesus that we can get new hearts and right spirits and be healed from fear and selfishness, to have our spirit temples cleansed, be at one with God, at one mint. The Israelites saved their lives uh, by looking to the uplifted servant, serpent. That look implied faith. They lived because they believed God's word and trusted in his means to provide for their recovery. So the sinner may look to Christ and live. He receives pardon through faith in the atoning sacrifice. Unlike the inert and lifeless symbol, Christ has power and virtue in himself to heal the repenting sinner. And then let's, let's, get, let's just add to this Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. For he himself, talking about Christ is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And we're going to pause right there. The two one. The two one. In the context, what's being referred to here? Paul is talking about Jews and non-Jews that were divided. And in his flesh, he makes the two one unifying people in one body with Christ as the head. He is unifying people. Christ is the head, and we're all united for those who come to him. But how is he doing it? By, by destroying the dividing wall of hostility. 
What is the dividing wall that causes hostility, that causes people to fracture into different groups, whether it's by economic status, by nationality, by race? What, what is the dividing wall? What caused Cain to kill Abel? Was there a dividing wall in that brotherly relationship? What caused it? What causes all hostility, division, violence, and conflict in human history? It causes it all. Selfishness or sin, exactly right. The carnal nature. Thus Jesus came to destroy the dividing wall. He came to destroy sin that exists in hearts. Understand, sin does not exist in record books. Let that sink in. Sin does not exist in documents, in digital platforms, in record books. Sin exists in living beings. Christ came to destroy the dividing wall. The dividing wall of selfishness, of fear, of prejudice, of bigotry, of hostility. He came to destroy that in the hearts and minds of people. What about abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations? How does he do that? Well, what is the purpose of the added law? The law that was added, the Ten Commandments that were written for the sinful human being. What's its purpose? It's like an MRI of the soul. Its purpose is to diagnose and reveal sin. I wouldn't know what sin was if it wasn't for the effectiveness of the law. It shows what's wrong with me and leads me to Christ. An MRI shows the tumor in my lung and leads me to the, to the, uh, the oncologist to get treatment. The MRI provides no treatment. The, t- the law provides no treatment. It simply diagnoses. It exposes. So what happens when Christ comes and cures the condition? Gets rid of all defects from the law. The purpose of the MRI is not needed. We don't need an MRI when no one ever has a sickness or has a disease. So he does away with the law by doing away with its purpose, by curing the condition, by restoring the law where it was supposed to be, the living law written into the living human being. Continuing on next with the next verse from Ephesians. His purpose was, and he did this. Here's here's the reason why. His purpose in doing what we just read was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. One new man. Yes, he created in his life journey, he became the second Adam. A new human being that is free from sin, free from fear, free from selfishness, free from the carnal drives. In Jesus, the carnal nature was eliminated in God's perfect character of love established. He did this by combining his sinless immortal life with our sinful mortal life. He became a real human being descended from Adam through his mother Mary. He took our real nature upon himself with all of its weaknesses and was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And we are tempted by our own evil desires, James chapter 1. He experienced humanity that felt pain, that felt anguish, that even had strong emotions that tempted him not to want to die in the Gethsemane. Please, Father, please, it's anguish, it's killing me. I don't want to go through with this. That's what his emotions were. That's that, that carnal drive. 
But he combined, he took upon him, took that and joined it with his immortal perfect self. And in Jesus, the two natures warred. Tempted, like we're tempted, but perfectly carrying out God's law of love by the exercise of his human powers of choice. He didn't win that internal battle inside his humanity by exercising any power that's not available to us. He killed the carnal nature. Purged the infection of fear and selfishness. Rose again on the third day in a humanity that he purified. Thus he became the second Adam. And all of us who join with him are branches grafted into the vine and receive from him the divine nature. We become partakers, as Peter says, of the divine nature. New motives, new desires, new, new thoughts. We are cleansed and renewed. And this is why it requires faith or trust in him. Second paragraph. Man, time is flying by. <laughs> haven't even got out of Sabbath's lesson yet. And I've got a bunch of good stuff to share. Okay, God often tells uh, people to remember all the things he has done for them, to remember his grace and so forth and so on. So he tells us to remember. But aren't there other places in the Bible we're told to forget and God says he forgets and he won't remember our sins anymore? Aren't we told that as well? So when the Bible says that God will not remember our sins anymore, does that mean memory erasure? He gets Alzheimer's. Or does it mean something else? So it means, and this is, because I think there's a point here on the opposite side of this coin. I want to come back to why I remember. But first, the forgetting part. It means that when sin has been removed from the heart, mind, and character, it's no longer an obstacle in the relationship and unity and at oneness that God wants for us, and therefore it can be forgotten from the relationship. He doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to address it. He doesn't have to treat it. There's no therapy. There's no discipline. There's no monitoring. Nothing needs to happen there regarding the sin once it's removed. It can be forgotten. We don't need to address it. That doesn't mean we have forgotten the facts of history. It just means functionally it's not in the way of our relationship anymore. So the point about God not remembering is not about forgetting facts. It's neither about us forgetting facts. We will remember facts and we will be so thankful for what God has done for us. But it's not something that needs addressing. Our relationship has been reconciled. So would our remembering be on the same principle? In other words, it's not about remembering facts of history. It's about remembering in a way that impacts the relationship, that bonds us closer to God. It's relational remembering, not factual cognitive remembering. It's remembering what makes us loyal, what makes us faithful, what makes us trusting, what makes us loving towards God. Remember what he's done for us. So think about this. There is a way of remembering all that God has done. That's what Ken was getting at earlier. There's a way of remembering all that God has done that actually hardens the heart and, and alienates us from God. For, did the Jews who crucified Christ, these Sadducees and Pharisees, the leaders of the church of the day, did they remember that they were descended from Abraham? Did they remember that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Did they remember the promises he made? 
Did they remember the weekly Sabbath, the annual festivals, that God delivered them from Egypt, that God chose David to be king, and that God promised that on David's throne a ruler would come? Did they remember all these things? Then how was it possible they crucified the one that they were remembering if they remembered them all? Because the remembering is not about remembering cognitive facts. It's about remembering the meaning of what all those facts are supposed to mean. And they didn't. He didn't live up to their expectations. Because they had the wrong law model, wrong expectations, and they had a narcissistic, and all this stuff was remembered as a way to advance them and make them better than everyone else. What about Christians today? Can we fall in the exact same trap? Remembering all these doctrinal truths, the Sabbath, and all the things we remember, but in such a way that we become God's enemies. And Jesus said, Matthew 7, 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons. Notice, not in the name of Buddha. They're doing the same of Jesus. And perform many miracles. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And then notice what comes next. The very next words of the, of the I don't know if there's a break, but this is what's recorded in the very next verse in Scripture. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice... It's not just remembering the words. It's putting them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who builds on the sand. When the rains came and the streams rose and the winds blew, the house fell. Anybody read my blog this week? My blog was entitled Building on the Rock. I didn't actually... Um, planned, planned to put this in here, but it fit right with our lesson. And I explore the parable. One of the things you don't have a choice for, you do not have a choice to avoid the storms. The storms come on everyone's house. Whether it's on the rock or on the sand, you're going to have storms. Your choice is not to avoid storms. Your choice is where you build your house. And the house is a metaphor for your character. Do you build your character on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus Christ? And when you build on him, trusting him, he builds in you. It's a cooperative relationship. You're building by trusting and plying and choosing to follow. And he builds in you with new desires and motives and insights and wisdom. It's a living cooperative building that's happening. It's very powerful. I encourage you to check the blog if you hadn't read it. Sunday's lesson, lesson focuses our attention on the rainbow, uh, which was uh, to help God remember his promises to never destroy the world again, but really to remind us that God wouldn't forget. It really wasn't for God's memory's sake. It was to encourage us that he had not forgotten. But has the world forgotten the purpose of the rainbow? Has the rainbow been co-opted? And what happens when people forget the flood? Because the rainbow doesn't represent what it used to represent, so they don't remember what happened. Has this allowed false beliefs to enter the hearts and minds of people today? So Peter writes in Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3, 
First of all, you must understand that the last day scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They say, where is this coming, he promised, ever since our fathers died? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's words, the heaven existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. Do we have scoffers today in the world? who mock the idea of creation, who scoff at the idea of a worldwide flood and Noah's Ark, are these, are these people who deny evidence, facts, and truths, who cling to the false worldview, the, who, the, who these people are, are the very ones leading our scientific institutions, our national and international policies. They're leading the green movement, these deniers of a biblical worldview. I think in prior times you said the, uh, the issue in Noah's time was climate change. And the issue now is climate change. It's one of the issues now, isn't it? These people are leading our government, these deniers of the biblical worldview, leading our government in the green movement, leading our, our, the world in the COVID response. Why has church leaders deferred to people who deny a biblical worldview? Why are they following these leaders who deny God's word? Why would we do that? If a person rejects God and refuses to accept biblical truth, who do you think is leading and inspiring them? It is Satan. I want you to understand, I'm going to say this very plainly. The green movement is not a godly movement. And we need to realize it and reject it. Peter continues, starting verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget that one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Oh, I'd like to have a whole week. Maybe we'll talk about that. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. According to the biblical worldview, what's the future of the planet that we're currently living on? Destruction. Destruction and replacement with a, with a perfect one without any flaws and sin and everything. That's the biblical worldview. What's the green worldview? So in the biblical worldview, what's more valuable, the people or the planet? In the green worldview, what's more valuable? The planet. So we must call the people. Recognize the difference. And that's exactly what you're seeing. Policies that are contrary to biblical truth, contrary to reality, being advanced, inciting fear, and getting people to participate in a process that will result in killing billions of them. We see this happening right now, and I try to put this out there, and I get pushback from people who, who supposedly listen to our class. Before God returns and recreates the earth anew, Things are going to get worse. And we cannot stop it. Satan is going to use the worsening conditions of the planet to incite fear. 
Fear of climate change, rising oceans, terrible storms, famine, pandemics. And Satan will cause these calamities to increase. He will cause them to increase. He will get more power, more access to the natural force of this earth, and he will disrupt them. This will cause those who have rejected God to become more fearful and seek to save themselves by taking greater coercive control, passing more laws, taking away more freedoms, and ultimately seeking to call the population in order to save the planet. If you're a Christian and you're supporting the Green Movement, you're supporting God's enemy. You are empowering those who value the planet more than the people on the planet and whose policies are designed to call the population in order to save the planet. This is what you're doing if you're supporting the Green Movement. But rejecting the Green Movement does not mean we fail to be good stewards of the earth. In the very same way we govern ourselves as good Christian stewards, we practice God's methods not to pollute, not to abuse animals, not to exploit the environment. But we will also not give our support to godless movements that value the planet more than the people. Movements that will injure and, and hurt billions if they can in order to save the planet. I think there'd have to be some middle point because some things that help the planet also help humans. Yes, and we would be supportive of anything along those. For instance, but you won't get this from the, from the greenies, most of them. If uh, people were to quit eating meat and go to a vegetarian diet, it would have a huge beneficial effect on the planet. Pollution would decrease. Methane would decrease, carbon emissions would decrease, health of the people would increase, pharmaceuticals would, be, uh, would, would submit, significantly be decreased, and that's why they won't do it. Understand the healthcare industry is not actually interested in your health. They're interested in your chronic disease states that you, they can treat with medicines that you can buy from them to keep them wealthy. Okay. Yeah, George. Just briefly, you know, that text says, we really don't wrestle against each other, though we tend to. We really wrestle against their powers of darkness. So it would be really cool if these folks in the Green Movement convert. We just solve Tarsus to join us. In that. And we apologize. We've been following them sometimes. So. so maybe we have time just to hit something in Monday's lesson, Deuteronomy 4, 32-39. It says, As now in the former days, long before your time, from the day God created man on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened or has anything like it ever been heard of? First point. Has any other God created life? Has any other God created humankind on planet Earth? No, only the true God. But notice the instruction here is to ask from one end of heaven to the other. It doesn't say ask from one end of the earth to the other. Ask from one end of heaven to the other. I'm suggesting that right here in the Old Testament... A cosmic conflict is introduced. It was in heaven that Lucifer started his war. It was in heaven that Jesus stood up to distinguish himself from Lucifer as a creator and Lucifer as a created being. Right here, ask in heaven. The angels were confused. They needed to ask, who is like the creator God? How does he design things to run? Ask from one end of heaven to the other. Right here. We'll see it again in next week's lesson. Has any other people heard of the voice of God speaking out of the fires you, you haven't lived? See, the creator of God doesn't ask that we climb into heaven and talk to him. He comes down to where we are to talk to us in the Old Testament with the pillar of fire, but eventually in his person, he became one of us to reach us, to commune with us. 
Has any God ever tried to take you to himself as a nation out of all the other nations by testing and miracles and wonders and wars and so forth, an outstretched hand to bring you out of Egypt? You were shown these things, here's the reason, so that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him there is no other. God did all of these things because he, sent, he is not a God who declares or proclaims only. He gives evidence. He's the God of reality. All reality supports the truths that he speaks. But Satan has no truth. So Satan is the false God of claims, proclamations, and, and statements. So Satan's system will always be a system where you don't want to investigate. You want to believe because you have faith. It's virtuous not to ask questions. It's anti-science to demand investigation and questioning. We should believe the experts, the pope, the priest, the theologian with the degree, the doctor at the CDC, somebody who's got a degree. We should just trust what they say and we shouldn't investigate. This is what happens when you have no truth. You make claims and then someone comes along and questions that with evidence. They're a heretic or they're anti-science. Don't listen to them. Even though they're scientists. Even though they're scientists. Even though Luther was a theologian. He's a heretic now because he's questioning with evidence some of the dogmas or narratives that the system is giving on proclamations and claims and authority of office without actual evidence. That's Satan's system. That's how it works. Truth loses nothing by investigation. True scientists and true science seekers are seekers of truth. And when they put their ideas and stuff out there, historically they say, now, community, examine it, check it out, take my hypothesis, test it yourself, see if you get the same results. If, there, if there's something that's not working there, show me so we can refine and improve the theory and the understanding. That's the lover of truth. But the lover of dogma, the lover of, of, a, of, a, of a system or a doctrine, they don't want their ideas questioned, and so they have to silence the investigation of truth. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the truths that you've revealed throughout all nature, throughout all history, and in the life of Jesus and in Scripture. We ask that you will inspire us, enlighten us, transform us, and enable us to be your witnesses at this critical time in human history, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.